Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today at 10.30 a.m., Thursday, January 17th. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. And happy birthday, Joanne. Thank you, Joanne. Happy birthday. <laughs> Margo Sanger-Katz of the New York Times. Hi, good morning, guys. And Alice Olstein of Politico. Hello. So I've now been wished happy birthday by more podcast friends than children. There you go. <laughs> Presumably that your will real family. remedy itself by the time the day ends. <laughs> the one who did remember knows he remembered. And the other one will catch up later. Boys. Uh, and our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So, wow, so much news this week. I want to start with drug prices. Julie, you say that every week. I know, but this <laughs> week there's really a lot of news. <laughs> uh, with drug prices, uh, and the reason I want to start there is that with divided government, it seems just maybe possible that this is the one issue where Republicans and Democrats could agree on. Also, because we've just seen a bunch of drug companies raising their prices for 2019 after they managed to not raise prices in 2018 at President Trump's request. So where are we on well, the they, whole they, drug price debate? They didn't debate? raise prices as much or as often in 2018. It's not like there were no increases of drugs last year. There were there were specific drugs and drug companies that did not go up as much or did not go up a second or third time. So it's not like 2018 was this magic year and 2019 is reversing it. No. But, 20, 20, but 2019, we are so far seeing, not magical. We are seeing drug prices go yes. up to, to the to the dismay of uh, of those who thought maybe they had talked them down a little bit. And what what do we know about what Congress might do? We're actually starting to see some already bipartisan burblings out of the Senate, right? Yeah. So what I think is interesting about the drug prices debate is, as you say, Julie. There seems to be kind of broad consensus across the political spectrum that it is something that we should care about and that we should be making policy about. But I don't think there is a lot of consensus on the ideas uh, to combat it. And I mean, there's some areas of overlap. But we saw last year the president and the Health and Human Services Secretary put out their kind of drug prices blueprint. And there was like a lot of ideas in there, many of which uh, were regulatory changes they could make without Congress. And some of them were fixes that they needed Congress to help them with. And now we see in the House as the Democrats take over the sort of committees uh, of jurisdiction over health care that they're, they have a whole bunch of proposals. And they are mostly, I would say, non-overlapping. So uh, several of the Democratic proposals would do things like punish drug companies that charge too much by taking away their patents or forcing them to uh, sell at prices that are lower than what they would like. Uh, There are proposals that would allow the Medicare drug benefit, Part D, to negotiate in a kind of holistic way for drug prices directly with the drug manufacturers instead of uh, the way it works now where you have these private companies that individually uh, do negotiations uh, for drugs. So 
there's a lot bouncing around, and it does feel like kind of a rich area for legislating. But uh, it is very unclear to me if any of these ideas that are emerging in Democratic House are likely to get much uh, enthusiasm from Republicans or, or move into the Senate. And I, I think also... But there's the wild card of Chuck Grassley, the new, yeah. the new chairman That's of the true. Finance Committee, who's been a big crusader about drug prices for a long time. This is not he's a new issue for Grassley. The he, he, they, they really tick him off. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he's promised action both on the legislative side and on the oversight investigative side. And so I think we could... Which he is famous for. Exactly. Yeah. For going hard there. So I think that um, there could be bipartisanship and being tougher, bringing in drug company executives to testify, that kind of thing um, seems to get bipartisan support. I think the biggest legislative action to watch, so we have these bills that, a package of bills that just came out from Bernie Sanders in the Senate and Elijah Cummings in the House and Cummings is chair of the Oversight Committee, very powerful, influential in the House. And the bills would basically, they're for importation of cheaper drugs from abroad, negotiation, uh, like Margot said, of drug prices directly with the government and, and drug makers. And um, the one where there is some overlap with the Trump administration is there's a bill related to pegging the price of drugs in the U.S. to the price of drugs in other companies. Uh, countries. Where it's cheaper in general because right, they exactly. have price controls. <laughs> and that was a version of that was part of the president's blueprint. So there could be some overlap there. I think the big divide is on direct government negotiation, um, which could be the most impactful in bringing down prices, but is also sort of the most uh, controversial and has the biggest partisan divide. And There's would only work if the government could say no, which is uh, and part we can of the problem. S- and we can see that the president really cares about this issue. He had a tweet about it recently. Uh, Alex Azar had a series of tweets that seemed to be responding to the president's comments. Where, there was a meeting at the White House the other day. Um, I think there is a real desire by the White House to kind of push down on prices, particularly on list prices. So these are the ones that just went up. This is sort of like the sticker price for drugs. The drug company says, like, I'm going to sell you this drug for, you know, $20. Most people don't pay those prices directly because their insurance companies do negotiate with the drug makers, but they are kind of the public side of the drug pricing system. And they do matter for people who have cost sharing. So if you like have a deductible or something like that, uh, even if your insurance company pays a lower price, sometimes you end up having to pay that list price until you're out of your deductible. So it will be interesting to see how that and you know, and and I think the president's sort of bully pulpit is what prevented these uh, list price increases from happening in the middle of last year, where basically he told a bunch of drug makers like, you know, we're going to come out with our blueprint. We're going to really like hammer you. He called out individual drug makers on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, he went after individual companies, and I think they responded by saying like, "Okay, well, we'll just we're just going to postpone our normally scheduled price increases and see what you got." Mm-hmm. And they did, and now they are at the next time that they usually raise their prices, and they are raising them. Uh, but I saw uh, earlier this week the president's Council on Economic Advisors has been circulating a little slideshow in which they are claiming credit for having depressed the increase in drug prices last year. Uh, there are some things about their presentation that are a little bit misleading, but it is but it's true. A political message. But it is true that you know last year looked a little bit better than uh, the last few years in which there was a lot of inflation in drug prices. I'm just curious because I literally have file cabinets full of debates on all. And- 
almost none of these bills are new, um, except maybe the the reference pricing, the pegging prices to to other countries. But most of them are things that have been introduced and legislated, and in some cases got through one house or the other. In some cases got almost all the way through the process and never seem to happen. And I get that this is a big political issue, and it's attractive to both sides. It's very sort of it's it's the populist part that appeals to both Republicans and Democrats. I just wonder if these anything's going to get over the finish line, given I, I think, that we've been here before. Some, I, 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 I actually think there's a possibility that something does. I, I wouldn't know which. I, I can see ways of splitting the difference. I mean, I can see, even see, okay, you don't want to, the Republicans don't want to allow direct Medicare negotiations. Maybe they will allow direct medical negotiations of a very limited number mm-hmm. of sole source drugs that are very expensive. Or, you know, uh, I, I mean, even remember the Obama administration started out with all uh, wanting Medicare negotiations. And, and later on, if I'm remembering correctly, Julie, you're nodding, it was, it was certain drugs. So, so I can see, I mean, maybe that's not where they will split the difference. But I, I do think there are some split the difference or common ground areas. I think people are really mad. Republicans, Democrats, and independents, it's been showing up in the polls for three or four years. And as complicated as healthcare costs are, and healthcare costs are really complicated, I think in some ways it's the easiest one for Congress to tackle. And it's the one that people are very, they feel because they go to the drugstore and they pay out of pocket and they see the price. I mean, I think we've all been shocked by, you know, and, and I mean, I personally, we talked about this before. I mean, I personally have learned how to print out coupons. It's crazy. And know? even, and it's and, funny, even <laughs> when you're only paying, you know, your 20 or 30 or $40 copay, it says what the retail price is on the, on the sticker. It's like, right. oh my God, this drug costs $400. And you can, it's so easier to understand than your EOB from a hospital bill, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're, you know, outrageous things, you know, the $94 Band-Aid or whatever it is. But, you know, drug prices are something that people experience, people get. A lot of people use a drug at some point during the year. Um, they see what they paid versus last year. Um, the the and, and I do th- and Trump wants it. Um, the Democrats want it. Some Republicans want it. Grassley is a big change from Hatch on this at the Senate Finance. So um, and then Congress every once in a while decides. You know we are in such a bitterly partisan stage, but every once in a while they decide, oh, that's a good idea, and they do it. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people thought the opioid bill would be postponed until after the election for political reasons. Well, nobody wanted to give somebody else credit, win, right? Yeah. Like everybody knew they were going to do it, but they thought they were going to do it after November, and they did it when, I forgot when it was, September, I think, because everybody ended up deciding, you know, this is the right thing. So I think they surprised themselves. They looked in the mirror and said, oh, we just did the bipartisan right thing. So <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm sort of, you know agnostic about where we go with drug prices. I can I can see it getting caught into larger uh, Obamacare, 2020, single-payer, partisan, Trump, you name it, politics, that it stops. And I can also see modest but uh, visible steps that are done on a bipartisan basis. It's definitely going to be a part of 2020. I mean, we're already seeing, um, obviously, Bernie Sanders' bill that we already talked about, but Elizabeth Warren has her bill to have the government actually manufacture the drugs themselves, certain drugs. It's going to be the fashion accessory of exactly. the Exactly. Every yeah. candidate has to have Amy a drug Klobuchar price plan. Amy Klobuchar is on the Grassley bill, right? Is on one of the Grassley bills. Is that the one about um, cracking down on misclassifying drugs? I can't I guess, remember. I think so. But I, but I think I, it was the Medicaid payment mm-hmm. one, though. Right, which would have limited but real impact. So right. so clearly it's going to happen in Congress, but it's also, I mean, we're seeing states that are starting to try to go after drug prices. I mean, this has been happening for the last couple of years, but I guess brand brand new California Governor Gavin Newsom has his own idea uh, about how to, to, to... They already have a transparency book, uh, which is not 
they have a transparency law in the books. It's not very transparent for reporters who've been trying to get the data. But the but Newsom's plan for direct government negotiation of drugs is really intriguing, and even more so just because. Um, California has the biggest Medicaid population of any state. And so that's a lot of negotiating power, theoretically. But like we have said on many podcasts, a lot of this is about the ability to walk away. If you're in a negotiation with a drug company and the drug company says, I won't come down to the price you want, you have to be able to say, "Okay, well, then my tens of millions of people aren't going to buy your drug then you're denying coverage of that drug to those people. It's it's going to be messy. There's some ways of tearing things, though, mm-hmm. and saying, okay, yeah, you know, we're not going to use that drug unless nothing else works. So it, it sort of depends. I mean, sometimes there's only one drug for a disease. Sometimes there are a lot of different drugs, and you can, you can. I mean, some states already do this, that so you have to try this. You know, it, it's try this. A lot of insurers that. already do right. that. Right, and, and, you know, pushing people toward effective, cheaper drugs is fine as long as it works for that person and as long as there's a... a a viable, fairly rapid way of moving on to the drug if the first one doesn't work, um, and particularly like in mental health. You know, there's a lot of antidepressants. Mm-hmm. People are really different in how they respond. But often, you forget the insurance issues. It's often a trial and error. It's not just the insurer wants you to do this one. It's like the doctors will say, well, let's try that one. And then, well, that one didn't work. Let's try this one. So the idea of... Um, Steering people toward a certain drug that the state gets a better deal on, as, as long as you're not preventing someone who needs a drug mm-hmm. or creating incredible barriers. So I'm not, I'm not even sure that you can't come up with something on negotiation on a Medicaid. But there, there are legal issues with the best pro, the best price rebate. It's really complicated. No one really right, well, wants us well, to but do I, that. I think, I think we're sort of getting to the it's complicated. You know, whoever knew that healthcare could be so complicated <laughs> part of this discussion. And I think it's why I'm like a little bit more skeptical that we're going to see some big thing happen on drug pricing because I think that everyone likes the idea of being able to make you know, wave a magic wand and just pay less for the same stuff. And I think there is a perception, you know, in, in some ways a true perception that the pharmaceutical industry is like an incredibly profitable industry and they could afford to make less money and we could still have all the same stuff and that somehow like we could just pay less and they'll just make a little bit less money and nothing else will change. But actually, I think when you sort of get into the nitty gritty of how these different mechanisms for forcing drug prices down would work, they're going to have some trade-offs, and those trade-offs are going to be kind of politically fraught. And, and they're going to yell and scream and say, you're not going to be able to get your drug. I mean, it, it, you know, yeah, like, like people like, don't necessarily want to have to, like, try four drugs before they can go to the one that they want. Uh, so that's, like, one way that you can br- drive down That's what happened in the California referendum two years ago. So, uh, so I want to move on, um, although same same general theme, um, staying on Capitol Hill, and we talked about this already a little bit, um, but we're getting a clearer look at who's going to run the, the committee committees and subcommittees that uh, handle health care. And obviously, it makes a big difference, as we've already said. Um, And while leaders have gotten way more powerful over the past decade or so, the lawmakers who lead the panels of jurisdiction, as they call them, uh, still help set the agenda. So what do we know about sort of the the new folks who are going to be running the big health committees and subcommittees and what they might want to do? Many of them are women. Yes, (laughs) that is is probably the biggest change. They could do a podcast. Yeah, but I mean, it's true. At the, at the, I think for the first time at the uh, House Appropriations Committee, not just the, for the first time a woman chairman, Nina Lowey of New York, but um, a, a woman ranking member, um, Kay Granger. So, the, so both the, the Republican and Democratic leader at the Appropriations Committee uh, are women. Um, and then at Energy and Commerce, um, the, where there will be a male leading the committee, two women leading the, the, the Health Subcommittee and the Oversight. Uh, Oversight Subcommittee, which is one of the more powerful oversight subcommittees um, 
in Congress. Um, what are, Alice, you were with me yesterday um, talking to Diana Deget, who's the new the new chair of the Oversight Subcommittee on the House Energy and Commerce <laughs> Committee. It's a mouthful. <laughs> she she seemed to have a fairly ambitious plan. For- oh, absolutely. And I think something that really came out of that talk was thinking about how much the House Democratic Caucus has moved on women's health and reproductive rights and abortion issues. And we've come to a place um, where a lot of the people you just named who are head of these committees and subcommittees are um, staunchly pro-choice. And And longtime champions. Yes, exactly. And will, you know, fight to keep Planned Parenthood funding and will fight to try to repeal the Hyde Amendment and all these things. So Nita Lowy for sure, Rosa DeLauro <laughs> um, to get herself. Um, so I, I think that's that's going to be a big theme in the House this year. What what else do we think is going to change from the from the new uh, committee? I, I noticed that uh, on the, the House Ways and Means Health Subcommittee, the new ranking member is Devin Nunes, um, ex of the Intelligence Committee. Uh, has he ever done anything in, in health care that anybody Remembers? Well, I'm sure it'll be entertaining to watch. <laughs> it's not his signature issue. I mean, the the, the people we're talking about, um, you know, Lowy, Deget, Eshoo, um, Anna Eshoo from Anna California is going to be the health subcommittee chairman, right, um, and you know, the male on the Ways and Means is, uh, is Lord Doggett. I mean, these are people who've been in the trenches on healthcare. They care about it. They're knowledgeable. They don't all agree on everything. Uh, Doggett is more liberal on Ways and Means health committee than Eshoo is on ENC. Um, she's and, from Silicon Valley. And that Polonis. Yes. So yeah, it's the, not that they're exactly all on the same page, but they have relationships. They have knowledge. They have experience. I mean, none of them um, that I mean, the, the single payer debate that's going to be sort of a subcurrent um, from like it's already out there. I mean, that is going to be sort of a political divisive issue that the Democrats are going to have to grapple with. I think all of the people we just mentioned are going to be on the more, well, the ACA is under threat again because of the courts, and that has to be our first priority. Um, it's not that they're not going to be part of this larger discussion of the aspiration of, you know, however we're going to call whatever we end up calling single-payer Medicare for all, Medicare for a lot of people, what, you know, Medicare and Medicaid buy-ins for many people, whatever the title ends up being. Um, these are all people who I think will be um, focused, as, as Alice just mentioned, on, on women's reproductive health. I think they will be focused more on ACA um, defense, repair, affordability issues. Shoring I think up. they'll all be <laughs> right. I think they're all going to be focused. They're going to all be doing a lot of oversight because they've been itching to do that. You know, <laughs> call those Trump officials up here and say, "What do you think you were doing?" Um, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, tr- they're saying they're going to try not to turn it into, you know, a crazy show that they're going to try to do responsible oversight. You know, we've seen Democrats and Republicans go off the rails over the years with oversight. Um, so, But I, th- I think they're substantive people. And, and some of it will be laying the groundwork for things that they know they cannot do now because the Republicans control the Senate, but that they're sort of putting down markers for, you know, seeing what happens in 2021. Well, I think the, um, the the Medicare for All debate is really where a great example of why committee chairs <laughs> matter so much, because the big headline was we're going to have the first ever hearings on Medicare for All, and we're going to have those in budget and in rules where the chairs happen to support those policies. But and which don't write the bill. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it, you know, it's something. <laughs> but if Ways and Means and Energy and Commerce don't hold hearings, 
this ain't going anywhere. So the big headline and the attention on the issue and the momentum is one thing, but actually getting a bill to the floor is another question. The Democratic challenge is how to harness that energy without <clears throat> making people think it's tomorrow. And that's a big challenge. But, uh, Julia, you, you have a better institutional memory than I. Are we sure it's there's never, ever, ever going back to Dingle in the 50s or there's never been a hearing? <laughs> oh, no. I mean, there, you there weren't have. born yet. But yeah, people were. People actually have. Just, there were there was a hearing during the, um, I think, of, during the Affordable Care Act debate. There was actually a Medicare for All hearing. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't even that. It so, wasn't even during the Clinton stuff, which I think there also was back then. Um, but there, there definitely was. Yeah, so, so I don't but know. Bill or on the issue? Uh, well, not on this bill. This bill right. didn't. Come, yeah, but it on, didn't a, exist, on a yeah. similar bill. But there, there has have been, been bills a Medicare, for yes, decades. Yes. Yeah. yeah. In the I think the mid nineteen. Well, mm-hmm. there's a there's been a Dingle, Dingle bill, bill since, since like he came to Congress. Seventeen seventy six. Dingle introduced a bill in honor of his father, who had who preceded him, who had introduced. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. since since actually the New Deal. That's yeah, when it, it that's when 30s, it started right. since the nineteen thirties. Seventy six, thirty three. What's the difference, <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. Anyway, I want, let, let us move on. But I want to talk about women's reproductive health because there's actually been a lot of activity on that front just in these Ruined first, by Sunday night. first couple of weeks of the year. <laughs> yes. I guess so. The biggest news is the nationwide injunction against the Trump administration's birth control changes. Um, someone catch us up on what that would have done. Joanne, you said it ruined your Sunday night. Well, luckily, it was a snow day here. So I didn't it didn't come in the middle of my yoga class. I was home. <laughs> Um, yeah, and uh, Alice actually I pre-wrote it. Alice, okay. <laughs> actually, Alice covered this for us, so let's uh, let well, we Alice. Knew, we knew it was coming, um, or we we knew it was likely. A good coming. journalist is a great scout. We're always prepared. <laughs> so, Alice so remind, was prepared. Remind us what the rule would have done. So the rule, which was set to go into effect this Monday, um, would have allowed almost any employer in the country to say, "I don't uh, believe in birth control for either religious reasons or just." moral reasons, um, and they could have gotten an exemption from Obamacare's contraception mandate. And uh, they could have offered their employees a health plan that does not cover contraception. Which is the, con- the contraception all, right. mandate says that uh, all health plans, all employer health plans with a few exceptions, mm-hmm. have to cover all of the forms of FDA-approved birth control with no copayment. Yes. They don't have to... Pr- they don't have to Co- they don't have to um, offer every single brand of every single variety, but they have to All cover forms. Yeah, right. they have to cover mm-hmm. a wide range of FDA approved birth control. And uh, there was a carve out for houses of worship because of years of litigation that was expanded to closely held corporations with religious objections. And the Trump administration was trying to expand it way more to be. Um, you know, small employers, big employers, public, private. Um, Basically, anybody who didn't want to, yes. any employer didn't want to offer birth control exactly. wouldn't have had to. That's it just, essentially right. it, just, what it, it was an opt-out. Right. It was an easy opt-out. Yeah. Right. And the Trump administration in the rule itself um, said, you know, this could um, mean that uh, m- more than 100,000 women would, would lose uh, access to contraception. And um, the group suing thought it would be many, many more than that. Um, and so two courts... Held, held hearings last week, and they both issued injunctions. The California court issued an injunction that just covered the states that sued, which was 13 states and D.C. The Pennsylvania court issued a national injunction. So this is blocked nationally until further notice. It's still going through the legal process. All right. Well, meantime, we're starting to see the abortion fight uh, um, popping up in Congress. The new well, dem- It's the March for Life this week. So I was just going to say that. Every single year, this yes. becomes whatever week the march is. It becomes... 
an abortion. Well, and the March for Life is 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 now because the tomorrow the 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 Friday, but the anniversary of Roe v. Wade is Tuesday. So, and then the Women's March is also this week. Although that's more because of the inauguration than the Roe v. Wade. But yes, this is always a busy week for reproductive. It's all coming together. It is. But but what I want to talk about, we've seen the House already, and and Congresswoman Deget was saying she thinks this is the first time there's ever actually been a pro-abortion rights majority in the House. I think she's right because there have always been so many conservative mm-hmm. Democrats. Um, the House voted on its very first day and almost nobody noticed to uh, overturn the global gag rule, the requirement uh, that um, international um, health and social service organizations basically not only not uh, – perform abortions to get USA, but not even support abortions in order to get USA. Or make referrals. Or, and, right, or yeah. make referrals. And the, this, um, is, this is the, um, to remind listeners, this is the, this is the ping pong gag mm-hmm. rule. Right. Every time there's a Republican president, it goes into effect. Every time there's a Democrat president, it gets waived. It's been, what, truly 20, 30 years? Uh, 1984. Okay. Reagan. Um, yeah, yeah Reagan Trump, started right. in 1984. The Trump administration has actually gone further. Their gag mm-hmm. rule is, is more extensive on, on how they define support and, mm-hmm. and involvement with abortion. But yeah, the it's it's the ping pong yeah. and it probably will be but forever. It's interesting it's you know the first time sort of the, the house right. sort of you know showing themselves on this issue. Meanwhile, Senator Mitch McConnell um who's been sort of nowhere to be seen on a lot of things but did say smart uh, guy. Yes, yeah, smart guy. <laughs> did did apparently real low. <laughs> announce that he's going to put a bill on the floor to make permanent the the Hyde amendment the As famous, the Democrats in the house uh, are trying to get rid of it although right. it, it has been there since 1976. Yeah. It, it's um yeah, the Hyde amendment is what and uh, abortion in Medicaid and other health programs. And actually, this bill would go further. It would be sort of a it government. federal spending right. on abortions, That's except in very, is. very limited health so, circumstances. So it's obvious the House bill is not going to go anywhere in the Senate, even though. And the Senate bill is not going anywhere, anywhere in, the in the Senate either. Because it's not an area where we see a lot of room for compromise. <laughs> well, in the House and Senate, I mean, this is mostly about messaging and showing values to these different party bases. So the Senate bill needs 60 votes. It's not going to get 60 votes, even if every Republican votes for it, which is an open question. We'll see this afternoon at 430. Oh, I think Senator Collins won't vote for it. Right. Yeah. That's what I mean. So, yeah, I don't, yeah. no, and Senator Murkowski probably right. won't either. No, no. In fact, the global gag rule bill that the House voted on came out of the Senate Appropriations Committee. And I was thinking, well, how did that happen? I actually went back and listened to the markup, and it's because Collins and Murkowski voted to overturn it. That's how it got out of the Senate Appropriations Committee. There's one slight twist over the last two or three years with mm-hmm. the Hyde Amendment, which is the Hyde Amendment, it goes on the appropriations bills every year. It's renewed every year, and it has been since 1976. This dynamic, It's been changed a few times. Right. But, but the dynamic that Alice just described with the House going in one direction, the Senate going the other, is a little bit sharper this year. But, I mean, this sort of basically the status quo has been roughly the same since 76. Mm-hmm. What's What has changed in the last few years is the Republicans have tried to attach Hyde language, mm-hmm. making it permanent to various other pieces of legislation. Mm-hmm. It is one reason why the uh, uh, the Affordable Care Act stabilization bill died in the Senate last year when there was some bipartisanship between um, Murray, uh, uh, Senator Alexander and Senator Murray in the Health Committee. There were some efforts to address subsidies and risk stabilization, you know, a bunch of th- sort of things that needed to be done and abortion language was part of the Hyde language in yeah fact, this pretty was, much this language was w- one of the major reasons it fell apart and one of the major reasons it probably could not be revived under it know. was also almost and that's it a almost repeat in right. today's bill right. Yeah. so right they're trying to extend Hyde to say that no plan on the Obamacare exchanges that covers abortion which is every plan in California and some other states um, can get a subsidy right. um, and even though there are already these 
firewalls in place to make sure the federal subsidy doesn't actually fund the abortion coverage at all. There's already a divide, but this because is that saying, was a compromise that got the ACA passed. Exactly, this, the, yeah, the, pack the, at the abortion, very last minute, mm-hmm. right? The abortion fight almost derailed the entire ACA. In the right, de- so, House Democrats, conservative mm-hmm. House Democrat or conservative on this issue, House Democrats, at the very last minute in March of 2009, 10. 10. And and that's been the biggest swing because those conservative Democrats are not in power anymore. And now the House Democrats have moved very far left on this issue. So even though this is sort of a messaging week on abortion and we might even see the administration release this Title X uh, contraception funding rule this week, but the, the dynamic Alice is describing – I don't think it goes away. I mean, we don't quite know how far they push it, whether they put it on every relevant bill. But this attempt to, for, by the Republicans to take Hyde a step further, to attach it to other legislation, that is not just a messaging war. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this dynamic we're talking about right now is a messaging war. But that is a little different because either they use it to kill bills they don't like or they are trying to – you put on something that the Democrats really want and they're trying to make it, you know, holding. And I, don't, it's I don't really like to use the word hold hostage because <laughs> both both sides do that. Mm-hmm. Um, poison pills can be either to kill a legis- legislation or because you really believe in something and you and you, you want to get must, it on something that's going to pass. That you know, the other side really wants mm-hmm. and you try to get it on there and have it hitch a ride. So. And the shutdown has almost hit pause on all of this. And I think as soon as the shutdown is over and they need to pass these appropriations bills, we're going to see these fights a lot because there are little writers on different bills, you know, related to abortions for prisoners and related to research using embryos and related to, um, you know, the global gag foreign ops funding. Fetal research, fetal yeah. cell research, fetal yeah. tissue and research. So I, I think the shutdown is sort of obscuring how many of these fights we're going to have. Well, speaking of the <laughs> shutdown, as we tape this. You don't the, think that it ended while we were on taping this? <laughs> no. As, as we tape this, the government is still closed. I imagine it will be closed. By the time most people hear this, um, and while the department could be some real procrastinators <laughs> in March, you never know. <laughs> While the Department of Health and Human Services is mostly open, there are increasing impacts on health policy from the agencies that are shut down. Um, One unexpected impact on the Affordable Care Act signups, which are still going on in a few states and plan changes, which are going on everywhere, um, is happening because the IRS is mostly closed. Why is that an issue, Margot? Well, so the IRS is mostly closed because the Treasury Department uh, is not funded, Um, although it appears... But what does that have to do with the ACA? Part of the way that the ACA works is if you go into a marketplace and you want to buy a health plan, you can get a subsidy based on your income. And it is the Treasury Department that verifies what your income was last year and that, you know, does it match up with what you're saying and then calculates what your subsidy can be. And that tells the exchange, like, go ahead and do it. You know, the Treasury is the money people and uh, their work is very important in calculating and distributing those subsidies. Because they're tax credits. The subsidies are, in fact, tax credits. It's not a, a check to you. It's a tax credit. So they're, them being shut down makes it hard for them to do that processing. I do think one interesting trend in the shutdown this week is that it seems like the executive branch has started to liberalize its idea of who are truly essential workers uh, because there are a number of categories of work that have essentially been stopped during this first phase of the shutdown, and they realize that those are painful. And I, the IRS is actually one example of this. So, you know, it's tax filing season. Uh, people want to get their tax refunds. Uh, the IRS sort of line workers who process those tax returns and send people their checks uh, were furloughed. 
and now they're being brought back in and there's something similar still happening. not being paid they're just being oh yeah not being paid in. just being asked to work and do that work so that people get their tax refunds uh, there's something similar happening at the FDA we talked last week about how there had been sort of a scaling back of inspections of uh, food that you know was there was some outcry about that and some concern that maybe you know food contamination uh, could go unchecked without those inspections and uh, since then the FDA has announced that in fact they're going to bring many more of those workers back to work still unpaid similar to the IRS workers but uh, gonna go back to work and, and do those tasks again so I was sort of this isn't health but I was sort of wondering what would happen you know my family pays quarterly an estimated tax payment and uh, we paid it and I thought well you know it's just gonna sit there on some Check pile. No, they cashed it. <laughs> well, because that was interesting. Because one of the things that we talked about uh, last week was that the FDA can't accept user, user fees. fees. They can um, spend the money of user fees that they that have were spent, paid by a certain date, but they can't take more in. But I'm interested that so the FDA can't take money, but the IRS can. The IRS took my money. <laughs> At least that's what Quicken told me. <laughs> The money takers are deemed essential. The money payers, not no, so much. I, I sort of thought that, you know, our Maryland, we live in Maryland, I thought our Maryland would go through in our federal one, which is sort of sit there. No, it's the other way around. They haven't cashed Maryland yet. <laughs> um, they took our, they, they did, in fact, you know, the check cleared. And I think the other shutdown, we, again, the other shutdown impact, it, it looks like um, the Indian Health Service, which, of course, is. Um, it's a mess. Yeah. And, you know, it's it should be, as Margot, I think you pointed out that, Direct services are essential and are still being provided, but apparently they can't get things like medicines or other supplies or food. I mean, it, it's really turning into to quite an impact um, on on people that that you know we don't normally see. Um, I mean, I th- I think that as the, as the shutdown has dragged on, there have been more implications than I think a lot of people realized. You know, beyond the overflowing trash cans in the national parks. No, and I, I hope that people realize it's not just the federal workers. It's the contractors who will not get back pay. It's the waitress at the cafe across the street where the workers aren't coming for lunch. Um, it's it's a you know I, you know I, I I hate to sort of rely on the Uber driver, but you know there are people who are worried about getting evicted because they're not going to have. Um, so we should all tip. And the um, White House said this week that they think that the economic consequences of the continuing shutdown could like they, they, this could. They way underestimated it. Yeah, and that it's yeah. pretty substantial. And as this as this drags on, it's going to have more and more in a drag on the overall economy for the reasons that Joanne is saying. Because having this large chunk of people not getting paid and not, you know, sort of being out in the economy has ripple effects. Right. You're not going to if you don't have money, you can't spend money. Uh, people will run up credit cards and debt and loans and you know, put thing patch things together for essentials to the extent that they can. But I mean, we did say. Um, you know, my birthday, my husband, instead of getting me a gift, we gave money to a food bank. Good for you. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. And, and now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. Alice, why don't you go first this week? So I think we've talked so much on the podcast about um, the opioid epidemic and the need for Congress to appropriate a lot of money to 
address it. It's it's just um, leading to so many deaths. And there was a piece in the Washington Post this week by Peter Jameson uh, showing that the money is out there. The programs have been launched, but that oversight and and implementation has been so poor that it's not getting to the people who need it most. And a, uh, pr- a program of, uh, I think, $4 million um, or um, so there was a overall $4 million grant, but within that, um, a $1.46 million uh, went to set up a program that did not treat a single patient for opioid addiction. And now uh, SAMHSA is investigating what the hell happened in the District of Columbia. And so two things jumped out at me about this story. One, um, the lack of oversight and how much this is wondering how much this is happening in other places. Um, but also I think the, uh, this showed, um, a different face of the opioid epidemic than the media has mostly focused on. We've mostly focused on people who are living in rural areas who are white and who are poor. And this is saying that most of the, uh, overdose deaths and most of the population in DC that is needing this treatment is older as African American. American and they're living in the city. And so they, you just need different strategies to reach those people. And so um, seeing how um, these programs are or are not getting tailored to meet all those different populations that are struggling. Joanne? I'm pretty good at finding these like wackadoodle stories. <laughs> this is a story by Ted Alcorn of the New York Times. And the headline is The Strange Marketplace for Diabetes Test Strips. These are the strips that people use to check their glucose levels, um, and it is legal to resell them. Unused, you know, not you can't. These are the unused. So some people who do not have um, as severe diabetes, who don't need to do the testing or don't need to do as much testing, end up getting these test strips, and they don't need them, and they sell them legally to oh, people. Oh, Shane, it's legal. It's mm-hmm. legal and it's nuts. And <laughs> uh, so, so, and there are markets. There's there's a store on, this one's 116th Street, and like which, right near Columbia University. Another one is online. There are a bunch of online, you know, we buy text, quick cash for teststrips.com. I don't want to advertise, but it's already in the time, so there it is. <laughs> and yes, th- this is another, like, only in America do we have a secondary market for unused glucose strips for people who can't afford them, even if they're unsure, un- if they're in, some people are uninsured and other people are insured but have these big deductibles and can't afford their diabetes medicine plus their strips. Well, I think, Margo, both yours and, and my extra credit sort of are along the same theme. You go next. Yeah, so I wanted to uh, mention an article that ran in Kaiser Health News and also Minnesota Public Radio called Patients Turn to GoFundMe When Hope I'm sorry, when money and hope run out by Mark Zedeklik. You know, this piece is just noting that healthcare fundraisers are just like an enormous chunk of what GoFundMe is doing. And there are a couple of different categories of things that are happening. So one is people are just trying to raise money to deal with their direct medical expenses, either because they are uninsured or because their insurance is inadequate. They have big deductibles and other kinds of co-payments. And I think it, you know, of course, highlights how health insurance is not as great as we would like it to be in a lot of cases. Uh, People are also using these GoFundMe campaigns to pay for sort of like weird alternative treatments that their insurance won't cover, uh, maybe because they're not medically necessary or there's just all kinds of stuff that happens when you're sick that's not covered by health insurance, right? If you need transportation, if you have reduced work, if you have to renovate your home to make it a wheelchair accessible, uh, we don't really have good systems for financing all of those accompanying costs. And so it's starting to show up in these kind of personal fundraisers. But it's great that GoFundMe exists. 
this. And, you know, I think for individual sort of charismatic patients who have a good network of people who can give them money, it's a good way to kind of plug the holes. But of course, it's there are huge problems with relying on this system to pay for people's basic medical needs because... Because it's just nuts. It's nuts. You know, it's, I just think if you are not the kind of person that, you know, if you don't have the right kind of social network, if you don't have the right kind of sympathetic story, if you are not that internet savvy, you know, then you, don't you basically don't have access to this thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, mine is sort of the opposite side of the coin from these. Um, it's a also very wild story from Bloomberg News called... This J.P. Morgan health conference is so packed, attendees are meeting in the bathroom by Kirsten Brown. It's about an annual health conference in San Francisco where basically everyone who makes money from health care gathers to network. Uh, and it's gotten it's so like crowded. 9, yeah. Yeah. It has gotten so crowded and there are so few places to sit down that people have taken to not just meeting in the bathrooms, but in the furniture section of the Macy's across the street from the main hotel where the conference is held. <laughs> I think this is kind of the perfect microcosm of why it is so hard to do anything about healthcare prices. There are just too many people making too much money off the way the system works now. I would love to spend, figure out the entire cost that everybody spends on that conference and figure out how it compares to like all the GoFundMe. How many, <laughs> like, the state, yeah. you know, the, yeah. the Arkansas <laughs> annual budget for Medicaid. I mean, the hotel rooms are like 20,000 bucks in San Francisco for four days. It's just, you know, some kind of like Marie Antoinette thing going on. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> been, like it's, it's been going also, on for years and it gets more, it gets, it gets bigger it gets and more worse. crowded I feel like every it year. It's like both a metaphor for like the insane costliness of our healthcare system and also for the housing problems of San Francisco. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> In, indeed, and the fact that they hold it in San Francisco Maybe sort they should of just go on a boat. <laughs> <laughs> Far lots, away. Of ch- lots of chairs on the boat. Lots of yeah. chairs, that's right. We All can right. rearrange them. <laughs> All right, that is our Solve show. Healthcare. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at what the health, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Sanger Katz. At Joanne Kennan. At Alice Olstein. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.